Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is Tyler Sitt. Tyler is the founding pastor of New City Church in Minneapolis, a church that describes itself as focusing on environmental justice and radical inclusion as a queer and people of color affirming place of worship. Tyler recently wrote a book called Staying Awake, the Gospel for Changemakers, which gives an overview of some of the core spiritual practices at New City. It can be a bit of a challenge to find communities these days that fully embrace practices like centering marginalized voices and prayer and worship and church planting, but this book does so in ways that are engaging for both newcomers to Christianity and those who have been Christians their whole lives. This was a rich conversation, and Tyler's ministry gives me hope for what the church can be. And I probably laughed more during this conversation than any I've ever had. I hope you enjoy it. Tyler Sitt, thank you so much for being on the Failing Boldly podcast. Pleasure to be here. Well, um, some who listen to this uh, know you well, but there will be others, of course, who don't. So before we dive into the really great book that you wrote, let's start just by having you share a little bit about your own faith journey and upbringing. I know you're a native Minnesotan, but I think when people think stereotypical Minnesotan, they may not have you in mind. Uh, So... Tell us about uh, about how you all came to be and how um, and and part of your faith journey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I my name is Tyler. I use he him pronouns. I am the church planter of New City Church in South Minneapolis. I grew up in oh you know Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Okay, <laughs> you guys. Oh gosh, and it was like this like I don't know like nouveau riche Republican town, white town. And um, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. And uh, being in church was really um, one of the safest places that I could be in, in my community. And, um, and just a place that I really enjoyed myself. I just loved it. Um, I, uh, my dad is from Hong Kong, and my mom is uh, a daughter of a German immigrant. Uh, she grew up in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And I think that, like, in addition to growing up United Methodist, a huge thing that shaped my faith was that I grew up in an interracial household. And my mm. um, my parents, you know, when they got married, went through tons of hardship. And they, um, like, when they posted, remember when people used to, like, post their marriage announcements in the newspaper? Like, when they did that, they, like, received death threats from really? people being, yeah, being oh like, gosh. and this is, like, quote, unquote, progressive Minnesota. So and Minnesota like, nice. What happened to Minnesota, Minnesota nice? Like, oh, it was like, they explained, like, it was like magazine letters cut out, like a ransom note. So oh tacky. Tacky is one way to say it. With a consistent font, if you're going to be. So anyways, um, <laughs> no, I don't mean to make light of that, but it, it was just like a huge formative part of my upbringing. And one of the stories that I heard again and again from my parents was, you know, Tyler, um, sometimes society gets it wrong and God gives us love to fix it. So I, I kind of feel like a lot of my faith formation 
and my views of social justice were all kind of like coming together in just the family unit that I grew up in. And that um, uh, kind of created this architecture for me to approach a Wesleyan understanding of grace and uh, a Wesleyan understanding of um, social holiness that just like clicked in with my worldview. So I, uh, yeah. So uh, fast forward, I did a whole bunch of things and dabbled in a whole bunch of stuff. And then 10 years later, I'm a United Methodist pastor. And then then here I am. (laughs) Let's, let's back up a little bit uh, and talk about, all those things. Uh, one of the things that um, in, I, I think I knew this, but I'd forgotten it until I reread until I read your book was, um, I mean, you've been all over the globe, uh, experiencing lots of different things uh, in today community, mm. having um, a, a meeting with a, a Dalai Lama, um, learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these different experiences, as you look back on it, was that just something that was part of you from the beginning? Uh, it was curiosity. And do you think it also um, comes out of it all of being a son of an immigrant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I uh, lived in Quito, Ecuador for a little bit. I lived, uh, I started a semester in Israel, Palestine, started a semester in um, uh, Dharamsala, India, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama resides. Um, and then did a little tour around France for um, Plum Village, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's community, and um, Tizé, the Tizé community in France. So um, I, I think that there were two things really driving that. So one of them was, uh, a, a, I don't know if I could put it in these words at the time, but a deep spiritual dissatisfaction mm. with, the, with the Christianity that I grew up with. Um, I think that like, I loved church. church. Like I said, church was like a really affirming, um, loving place for me. Uh, and the spiritual practices that I learned, uh, early on in church, I didn't feel like were supporting, uh, the internal kind of storms that I was encountering when I moved to college, when Mm. I was trying to figure out how to adult and all that stuff. And so I think that there was a real spiritual hunger to like, just kind of see what's out there. And so I, um, yeah, uh, uh, whether it's talking to indigenous folks in Ecuador or the Jewish community, the Palestinian community and um, the Holy Land or, or whatever, I think that there was just a real like knowledge that there is a deep, uh, that, are, that we're called to a deep spiritual life and, and to have grounding in God. And somehow what I grew up with was only part of the picture. So I wanted to kind of fill that out. Um, and ironically, after doing all of this travel, it, was, it wasn't until I arrived at Teze at the very end that I was like praying in front of Jesus, singing, I talk about in the book, um, a singing meditation that they do at Teze, that all of a sudden I was like, oh, dang, I'm, I'm super Christian. <laughs> like, I'm super duper. I really love Jesus. I am profoundly Christian. It's just the Christianity that I grew up with didn't have a, a, a like, the Christianity that I grew up with didn't show me the contemplative, mystical part of Christianity mm. that, uh, that shows a path towards an experiential knowing of God. And once I was in this monastery and realized that Christianity 
the Christian family does have a path towards an experiential knowing of God. From there, it was like, okay, well, that's, that's just it. I'm sold out. I'm, I'm in it for Jesus. So like, did you, once yeah. you, once you kind of came to that re-realization, I guess, Yeah. did you have a sense how, I guess, how quickly did you realize like, I've got a, a, I guess I'm going to go back to the United Methodist church and B, I'm going to go back to Minneapolis, but I'm going to start something new. So did those to all of that come together easily for you? Or were you still like exploring and wondering how am I going to live out my super duper Christianity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's so like, kind of like non-binary in, in the fact mm. that like, I never stopped being a United Methodist, mm. but I was just like a dissatisfied United Methodist. Who's kind of like dabbling with a whole lot of other things. Yeah, And um so I do think that there was a part of me that did feel a pull back to United Methodism. And that was, that was never fully severed, but um, yeah, after wandering around a lot of places, in addition to kind of the different countries, I also lived um, in Boston and Atlanta and then uh, later in Chicago, I just realized that there's, uh, if I can that there was a certain tension in my life. And that tension was on one hand, I love cross-cultural um, encounters. And I love being a stranger in a place. And that's kind of that, like, kind of what you were talking about, alluding to before about immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I care about social change. Mm-hmm. And the thing that a tourist can't do is create social change. Like by definition, you're an outsider. And like, I, especially as an American felt like if I intervene in anything that's going on, that could very easily become just another act of colonization. Mm. So like there was a ton of social justice stuff going on in India while I was there. And I felt very hesitant to Mm. figure out how I participate in it. So I think a lot of the callback to Minnesota was like, this is the place where I can authentically say like, I am from here. Mm. I understand kind of the mindset and I, um, and this is the place where I can affect the type of change that I feel like God is requiring for the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. That it, do you think that's a, at all, I don't know if counterintuitive is the right way to say it, but it, it seems like there can be a wanderlust for young mm-hmm. adults. Like mm-hmm. I want to live my life, but surely if I go elsewhere to another place, that's where it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it seems a little counterintuitive to say, I'm going to go back to my home and my roots. Yeah. Would you say, is that, in your own experiences? Yeah. I mean, uh, I have, I have had, and will always have a certain measure of wanderlust. Like that never really goes away. Um, for any uh, listeners who do Enneagram work, like hardcore Enneagram seven here, like, (laughs) like kind of like shark mentality of like, if I stop moving, then I die. Like (laughs) that's like a real deep thing of mine. But what I realized is, um, the reason, I mean, just to get dip into a little bit of Enneagram language, the reason why I was engaging in wanderlust is because I had a deep fear of being trapped in suffering and somehow mm. like engaging new cultures or engaging exciting new things would prevent me from being trapped in suffering. But the switch really flipped when I realized that I am called to be an agent of social justice in the world. And I can't do that while I'm just wanderlusting around. And therefore, like, I'm trapping myself in suffering by, mm. by escaping my calling and tr- by fleeing my call. Like I was doing kind of a Jonah thing where it was like, I, I was running away from my calling to create social change. And I think 
um, that is like running away from your calling is the surest way to make sure that you live in suffering for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, um, so the call back uh, came, came pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with your book, on the one hand, like all of the, if somebody were just to look at, say, the table of contents and they see the the titles of a lot of the chapters, on the one hand, it seems like this is, you know, quote unquote, just another uh, book Mm -hmm. about religion and church with worship and prayer and small groups, Sabbath, um, all of that. But it's, it's, I'll just attest, it's not, it's much different uh, and, and very rich and really wonderful reading. When you were with 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 pictures with illustrations, yes. <laughs> uh, and um, when you were thinking about the possibility of writing something, who were you thinking of? Who who were you hoping would sit down and read this? Yeah. So, uh, um, New City Church. I don't. I don't think I I said this in the beginning, but um, so New City Church is a multiracial community. The racial demographics of New City Church match the racial demographics of the city of Minneapolis, almost to the percentage point Mm -hmm. in white, black, Latin, and Asian populations. Um, So, and we're mostly millennial and Gen Z and probably like half of the folks identify as queer, half of the folks and growing every June, if you know what I mean. Like every pride, (laughs) it seems like uh, a couple more people are stepping out. (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh and probably 40 percent of our community doesn't actively identify as christian oh that's interesting so like a lot of the formation of this book came from pastoring this planting this community and then pastoring this community and hearing people come up to me after worship and be like okay i love what you're saying but i hate that you're forcing me to give christianity another chance when i thought mm-hmm. i had completely banished it from my life and now i'm like ah shoot maybe i should i should try christianity again who should i be reading and don't you dare recommend like another like cis white guy who's going to try to name what the queer experience is like and so it's like okay let me look at my bookshelf and i have some incredible books by queer people and people of color from seminary who, who are writing on like an ivory tower level. Yeah. I have some incredible books uh, written by white folks, including your book, Chris is like so good. And I've recommended it to so many people. Um, but like for people for a certain location, social location, they don't see themselves in that. Right. And, um, and I've uh, written, or I, I've, I've seen like, memoirs and kind of like Mm. first person explorations of faith, but all of them assumed that the reader knew what church was about. And as I'm looking at the people at new city, it's like, I can't knew what Christianity was about too. I knew that. Yeah. Right. Like there are more and more people showing up to new city who are like, it's not that I have a strongly negative opinion of Christianity. It's that I have zero. It's like a, like there's just like zero influence or impacts that I have from Christianity in my life. It's not in my schema, except for hearing about conservative evangelicalism in the news. Right. It's like it. So like, I, I just found, I felt like I needed to write a, I needed to find a book that didn't make any of those assumptions and kind of explained Christian practices from the ground up. And when I couldn't find it, um, I just figured I might as well write it. So it was really like, this book is really the process of creating a theology that arises from community and is directly relevant to people who aren't traditionally 
written for in the Christian literature world. Have you had many, um, so one thing that I've talked a fair amount with people on this podcast is around the uh, denominational, and it's not just United Methodist, and it's not yeah. just Protestant. I think a lot of uh, folks are kind of wringing their hands over the future of the church, and mm-hmm. that, that um, those people who are finding new city, not and not only are uh, grew up in the church, but were burned by it or turned away from it. But as you name too, some people are like, I, I, I don't know from Jesus. I, I know yeah. people talk about him and some really scary people talk about him, but that doesn't seem right. Uh, and so yeah. are you, are you finding that uh, officials are starting to come to you and like saying, Tyler, what do we do? Uh, or mm. because of who you are as a gay pastor, are you still finding some people are a little bit, well, there's that Tyler Sid and some of it sounds interesting, but let's keep looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I get a lot of, uh, first invitations and I get a lot fewer second invitations. Uh, that's interesting. Because uh, I get a lot of folks who are like, wow, what exciting thing and like millennials and we're trying to diversify who we're listening to. Or whatever. <laughs> and then I come in, I'm like, okay, so this is what this is going to have to look like. Like the future of the church has to be anti-racist. Like we just need to reckon with that and like exercise white supremacy from the demon of white supremacy from our church. Like we just, that we just need to invest in that. That's what we need to do. And also like queer people are like the affirmation of queer people is like a non-negotiable for Gen Z. And also like, have you considered using denominational structures for reparations? And they're like, okay, thank you so much for your thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send you a lunch voucher. (laughs) (laughs) Like, and, and then, you know, I get fewer second invitations and I, and I, and so take it, take it for what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, with the folks that you are working with at New City, plus mm-hmm. maybe the people now that you are talking to people about the book, and again, I'm, I'm thinking about the people who don't have a ton of experience in the church and the various spiritual practices that New City practices, mm-hmm. hopefully that any vibrant church begins to, begins to practice. What are the ones that you find new people to Christianity like really embrace? Mm-hmm. And which are the ones that they really like, uh, that seems way too hard. Yeah. And I would be curious how my answer compares to how you'd answer this about urban village. But so um, for sure, the most accessible uh, of the, so I named nine practices in my book and for sure the most accessible of the nine for the non-Christians who come to New City is centering marginalized voices. Hmm. Um, like for sh- just the neighborhood that we're in, like New City is walking distance from George Floyd Square we have community organizers, like we're drowning in community organizers, like so many activists, so many social workers and teachers and kind of do good kind of jobs. And, uh, and the concept of centering marginalized voices, looking at the stories like the Beatitudes and looking at liberation theology and saying like, hey, um, uh, uh, Jesus walked out to a well at noon in the hot Middle Eastern sun to talk to someone he who was like completely marginalized from his community to talk to a woman who wasn't, he wasn't even supposed to like, and, and that's what we need to do. Like we need to show up to the wells in the Mm -hmm. desert to uh, like, listen to people who no one else is listening to because they're the ones who are going to point towards the kingdom of God. And so like, 
that's super accessible to folks because it aligns with a lot of other worldview parts. Um, uh, Yeah, I think that um, the reason why I made worship the first chapter is because there's a lot of folks who feel tempted to be like, Christian ethicists, but mm. not lovers of Jesus. <laughs> like a lot of people are like, I'm willing, okay, like centering marginalized voices, liberation offered by the gospel. Like, okay, I can get down with that. Like, I see yeah. why the community of faith is an important organizing unit. And then it, but it's like the reason why worship is chapter one, because it's like, if there is not an experiential knowing of God that comes through worship which i call love training like that comes from our heart place Mm -hmm. then all of this is not going to succeed and that that's a tough pill to swallow for (laughs) for a lot of people because worship can be super awkward like you're singing to the air you're hearing a person like one person talk kind of loud for a while (laughs) you're reading from a book that's like way older than any other book that you're reading and like you're folding your hands and and you know, like you're having vulnerable experiences around people that you don't know, like all Mm. of these things make worship to be a very unappetizing practice. And it's also like the core fundamental thing that nothing else can exist without. So (laughs) that's, uh, yeah, that's the give and take, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, it, it, that's helpful, really helpful because I think to, it speaks to the, diversity of experiences in progress in the progressive church. I think especially early on in urban village, we probably had the exact opposite experience. Uh, A lot of people were like, we're in, because we we got a fair number of former evangelicals. So worship, I'm in on that. And they were also in on affirmation and inclusion of LGBTQ Mm. folks. But when we hit, after about four or five years and we started talking about Mm anti-racism is kind of, you could almost hear not by a ton of people, but for some, like the brakes squealing, like, Mm -hmm. "Ah, I'm -hmm. not sure I'm ready for that yet. Uh, So I think it just speaks to the diversity of experiences that churches uh, have and kind of what they're experiencing. Absolutely. And yeah, I, and I think that, um, when I even think about um, like Chicago as a city, like Chicago is so much larger of a city than Minneapolis is. Like a lot of the folks who moved to the city in Minneapolis, uh, I mean, many of the folks who moved to our neighborhood do so because they want to participate in social justice. So like, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to think about how context informs all of this. Yeah. Can I ask, what is the most challenging practice for you personally? Oh, I mean, it depends on the day. Like for sure, like all of them is, is, is the one answer, but um, I, I got to tell you, I think that um, my understanding of leadership development has really changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that I, and certain parts of my ministry career, I've really struggled with that because I, um, you know, like I did, like when I was at Urban Village and when I was under the excellent tutelage of, of you, I was <laughs> like, okay, so this is how leadership development is going to work. There's going to be a chart. There's going to be like volunteers and training and then leaders and then coaches. And we're going to create like this kind of like self-sustained system. And, um, and uh, leaders are just going to kind of pour on in. And I saw a lot of like amazing leaders uh, at Urban Village. And I think that... Um, 
it's not that there isn't leadership at New City Church by any means. There certainly is. But the leadership, the understanding of what leadership means is different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's largely, honestly, has to do with um, how we relate to the corporate world. Um, mm-hmm. I think that like there are some like real ringers who are like gospel of, <laughs> who are like bringers of the gospel at Urban Village who have at least some like corporate leadership training through like mm. an MBA or through like their workplace. That's like, okay, I kind of know how to like operate in, in, in this kind of way. And I think that a lot of people at new city are like getting leadership formation training from uh, like community organizing and then protesting with the corporate world. <laughs> and it has like a deep, it has a deep suspicion of the corporate world. And of course there were folks like that at urban village too. But I just, I just found like so much suspicion around any type of like linear process or any type of hierarchy that I had to really like recast that. And I think that for, for some parts of my ministry career, that kind of shook my confidence because it was like, well, I'm not seeing the same like beautiful infrastructure that I, that I you know, saw at Urban Village or at these other churches. But um, a lot of it ha- comes down to um, like deeply held philosophies and values. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, what, another part of the book that I really appreciated you, and we talked about this before we started recording. It sounds like it, at New City, there's the suspicion of corporate structure, suspicion of hierarchy. And then of course you're doing a lot as you center marginalized voices, you are to, to, in the broad term, you're fighting for justice. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what can happen, it certainly happens on the right too, and I'm speaking in general terms here, but on the left too, when you fight that too, you fall into, you talk about perfectionism. Oh, uh, and, and and when that happens, then you one begins to um, lose some grace, not just for the person you're pushing against, but also for yourself and your allies too. Yeah. If, if your friends aren't quite... Um, up to snuff perhaps is what you want, uh, then you might uh, harbor ill will toward them or it might damage their relationship. Um, so first, I want to ask you first, how have you, how do you, do you see that play out in, in, in your ministry, uh, in your circles? Man, the most exhausting sporting event is the oppression Olympics. <laughs> where people are like, where people are like comparing or kind of like trying to like one up each other on how woke they are or how um, uh, uh, deserving of the center stage kind of like this. There's like some weird, there's some weird tensions that come up in social in social justice circles. A lot of people come to organizing circles because they have some trauma that they mm. need to work out. And then the protesting is part of the trauma healing. Like the, I, and, and in some ways I really celebrate that. Like, sure. yeah, you were hurt by a system and this protesting is one of the ways that you're working out a future to kind of know that that, that future uh, problem isn't going to exist for other generations. Like I, I really believe in the healing of that. And activist circles aren't set up to manage trauma. Activist circles are set up to create social change, which are related, but different things. And so like a lot of folks come to social justice circles to work through some of their stuff and they're getting partial, but not complete 
transformation. And that's where a lot of that egoic, like ego, uh, 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 disintegrated part of their Enneagram type again, like uh, that's where a lot of those things start coming out. Mm. Um, I name perfectionism in particular because there's a lot of Enneagram ones, which are the reformers in, in, in social justice circles and, per, and toxic perfectionism genuinely stops progress so, mm. so often. Um, but, uh, but also like, I think that one of the things that specifically Methodism really offers is, is a robust understanding of grace and an insistence that like, we're never going to get to the point where we don't need God. Like there's, there's always going to be a need and a desire for grace. And if that's true for a theological relationship, then that should be true for our social relationships as well. Yeah. Well, to and continue on with in the kind of Wesleyan vein, not only is there need for acts of mercy, but acts of piety. And so that yeah. sounds like to what you, what you're trying to do at new city and beyond is to introduce things like sa- keeping Sabbath and introduce things like prayer, because yeah. for the vast majority, regardless of what it is that you're fighting for, if, if you don't have that, you, you're, you're really going to do harm to yourself. True. And like, the empire, which is kind of what I call the forces of oppression and evil yeah. in the world, like the empire can spot those cracks in the foundation from a mile away and mm. will leverage those weaknesses to divide up a community. Another chapter in the book that you write, and of course, that I really appreciate is when you talk about planting mm-hmm. and um, there was a gathering in, in Minneapolis um, a little more than two years ago, uh, it was called UM Forward. And mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know, there's a lot that's going to be happening, I think, in our denomination in the next <laughs> couple <lot>. of years. <laughs> and so there was this was a gathering to begin to talk about what my a post-denomination looked like. And in my memory, anyway, you were about mm-hmm. the only one who was really talking actively about how are we going to, yes, we can, de- we can deconstruct all day long. Uh, what are we going to do to plant again? And so uh, in your conversation about that, you mentioned and you write that marginalized people actually are probably the best equipped to plant new things. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I can confirm that, at least from my experience, I was the only person who talked about planting for the entirety of that conference. And I'm like, how are we going to find a way forward if we're not planting a way forward? Like, it seems so <laughs> obvious to me. So um, yeah, I, it's, it's somehow like, not that popular to talk about in in a lot of leftist Christian circles. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all because marginalized people have had to plant everything that we have, (laughs) you know, like, like no one in the straight community was like, let me, let me, why don't I just start a gay bar for you? Just (laughs) a place to hang out for. Like no one was starting this stuff for us. No one was like, let me make sure that the uh, the Chinese immigrant elders have a place to to mm. see, have their needs taken care of. Like no one in the systems of power are looking out for that. Yeah. Marginalized people have always had to carve out that space for ourselves, like since the beginning of oppression. And so and so that's where that observation comes from. That like marginalized people have always had to like imagine spaces that didn't previously exist like catalyze a a group of people, a community of people to like hold a space 
and to like redefine norms so that this space stands in juxtaposition to the empire. Um, however, like I think that not just planting, but specifically church planting is something that is really important for our future because a lot of spaces that marginalize people, I'll just speak for myself, like a lot of the spaces that I've been part of that were secular spaces that consisted of marginalized people started to reflect the same empire dynamics hmm. that we were very, that we we're trying to avoid. And so like part of the reason why the gospel is so valuable to me is because it's like an immune system against internalized oppression and internalized racism and internalized homophobia uh, that allows us to create authentically different communities than, than what we're trying to oppose. Yeah. And yet most, most of the stuff we read about when it comes to church planting are led by and written oh, by yeah. and shown uh, people look like me. <laughs> Just like white guys who are amazing speakers, shiny <laughs> shoes, straight teeth great arms like all it's just like it's like how many of these am i gonna listen to before i like i've been to so many church planter trainings where it was like i'm listening to this like quote-unquote like revolutionary methods of church planting and i'm like man queer people have had to figure that out when we were 12 years old yeah like why are you telling us that which so, is why yeah when, and when you said that that was a big you would think you would have thought that i would have thought about that before but when you said that a couple of years ago, it just such a light bulb went off for me. I'm like, Oh, of course that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, and, um, kind of recommitted myself to trying to figure out how, how can I, how can we make sure that, that we're supporting those, yeah. those folks to plant and to create, um, so, and so that too, the the guys with the straight teeth and the nice shoes <laughs> yes. can learn. Um, right. uh, and that's, it's hard. I think this is part of, I think white supremacy is mm-hmm. for those of us who have been in power and are looked to first and foremost to take a step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet I think, I think for the future of the church, that just has to be, that has to happen. Um, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think, um, there's some, there's kind of like a, the logic of white supremacy is always reductionistic and always um, uh, scarcity based. So like white supremacy says like, hey, like if those people succeed, that means that you're going to lose. Right. And I think that like what liberation and what collective liberation means and what the gospel means is like, actually, when we center marginalized voices, it's better for everyone (laughs) like like the like the kingdom of god anytime it breaks into the world it's good for all of creation and like that's something that i think supremacist thought really doesn't want you to see because that that that's again like uh breaking into the weaknesses and the fractures that were already in society to to stabilize existing power structures of domination there's enough for everyone and there's generosity that's multiplied mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily, it can, and I do think it can happen too in the metrics that we might look at with, you know, numbers of churches or number of people in churches and so on and so forth. But I think also just the generosity and growth that happens within us, mm-hmm. that is multiplied. And that is, and a, mm-hmm. one might argue that's, that's the most mm-hmm. important. I don't know. I'm really inspired by scholars who are looking at hush harbors, which is like, when enslaved people 
during the transatlantic slave trade when enslaved people would go down by the river and create their own houses of worship mm. that were separate from kind of like the, the white plantation theology uh, places of worship. And it's like, yeah, probably what God cares most is like how many hush harbors and things like them are happening. And that has like, so <laughs> I don't know. It's really hard to count that because they meet down by the river and not at general conference, <laughs> you, know? And it's like, <laughs> you know, they're not always like denominationally affiliated, but it's like these pockets of liberation that really change society. Like that's, I think, uh, if we are to have a future as a denomination, it has to be from us becoming really good at recognizing and counting those. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm at the point too. Not, I mean, I, I certainly consider myself a, a United Methodist, but I, I'm at the point too, where it's, it's not just denomination. It's just, it's mm-hmm. the future of our faith uh, yeah. that's at risk uh, if we don't start thinking these ways. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, and I kind of feel like, a great illustration of that in like a nightmare bizarro world kind of way was the insurrection Mm. where it was like, I mean, people were, there was like worship music happening at the insurrection. There was like crosses and people saying like, I'm doing this for Jesus. And I feel like watching that. Do you mean uh, January, the January 6th? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. When a bunch of people stormed the Capitol. Right. Um, And I just feel like that was a great illustration of me. I had my own recognizing a reckoning of like, man, it really doesn't matter if the United Methodist church gets it right. If we're not looking at the whole Christian family, (laughs) because like we got some siblings in our family that need to be called in. And uh, that's not going to happen if we just kind of like create our own little liberal bubble and then feel good about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also takes, I think people like you and books like this, who can, who can put together conversations around all of these things. It is centering, centering marginalized voices and it is worship. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is building leaders and it is keeping Sabbath. It is being generous uh, in lots of different ways Mm -hmm. and it is planting new things. Uh, And so, and I think we just fall into the trap of thinking this is kind of, you know, anti-racism language of thinking either or rather than both and. Uh, Yeah. 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 Well, um, this is a podcast about failure, and I Yay. always ask my uh, guests to share a story of failure from their own lives. Uh, and so uh, is there something that you can share with everyone, whether it happened this morning or 10 years ago, whether it be funny or serious, personal, professional, what have you? Yeah, I mean, so many things come to mind, but um, I think that something that uh, okay. So I'm going to say like a serious one and then I'm going to do like a fun one. Okay. So the serious one is, I mean, the summer after George, the uprisings and, and George Floyd, uh, George Floyd's murder happened. There was like a real, like, uh, like, uh, huge uprising, a, a huge amount of force, like a tsunami of force for us to, really imagine a new way of policing or a new way of creating community safety in Minneapolis. There was a huge campaign for us to figure out um, community based alternatives uh, to policing. And 
And we did a whole sermon series on it, did Jesus police. And we were like really in this. And I think when, certainly when Dalal Eid was murdered in the winter, but really when Dante Wright was murdered in Brooklyn center during the Chauvin trial, Mm. I think that there, there was just kind of this sinking feeling of like, all, after all of this effort and all of the attention and all of the donations and all of the international recognition, it doesn't feel like we've really fundamentally shifted the circumstances that resulted in George Floyd dying. And that's mm. like something that we really have to reckon with. So of course, like lament and passion are just two sides of the coin. So like we lament it so that we can find passion to continue going, but I, th- I think, yeah, on a like society-wide scale, that was something that was hard for us to look at. Um, on a, like a funner level, um, 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 one time I was, uh, okay, so it was the summer between, I can't believe I'm telling the story on a podcast. Okay, so it's the summer between senior year of high school and freshman year of college. So I'm like graduated And I have like all of the like hubris of a teenager who is socialized to be a man, like all of this, like, (laughs) just like, and, um, and my friend and I were like, we should write something for the fringe festival, which is like this, like festival where, where people write plays and musicals and they can perform it in theaters. It's a really huge deal in in twin cities. And we're like, yeah. And when, and we were accepted, our application was accepted because they always try to support young artists and we're like, great, we're going to write a musical. Do you know how to write a musical? No. Do I know how to write a musical? Definitely not. But I've been in a high school musical. So I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so we try to like write this like a nightmare of an hour long. <laughs> it turned out to basically be a hostage situation where it was like, there was music and we were singing, but the plot was all over the place. The characters were terrible. <laughs> and get this, we had like after the first couple of performances and we heard people like leaving the reviews, like this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then, and this is terrible. We created like a giant, uh, we printed out like a giant like tag board poster and put it on an easel in the lobby that explained the plot of the musical <laughs> to be like, uh, so we know that this isn't quite clear. And so we're just going to connect some of the dots here. Um, yeah, that's not usually a good sign when you're on the placard, you have to <laughs> kind of explicate the, the plot of your, of your musical. <laughs> Oh my gosh! It was, does the did, does the musical did it have a name? It's called the Vinyl Diary. The Vinyl Diary. It was about a, like people like teenagers put, found a record that also like allowed them to travel through time <laughs> and or like different dimensions. Unclear. Like somehow teenagers were doing something with a, a vinyl record, and it was. Um, it was really, it was like profoundly bad. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I think that there was a couple of things that I learned from that. Like one, um, I was seriously considering pursuing a career in theater and it was kind of between uh, theater and ministry. And I feel like this experience was Jesus's way of saying like, 
darling, I believe that ministry is the right path for you. <laughs> like, please. You can be theatrical in your you own way. Look at, look, at, uh, look at the church and how much you can do there. Um, and I think the other thing was just the humility uh, that it taught me of, mm. of realizing like, hey, uh, I've had some successes in like some early leadership experiences. And that was largely because the careful mentorship of a lot of people who really love me. So like there, there was like a real gratitude and humility that came from that, um, that um, I continue to appreciate my mentors, including you. So um, that, that was really formative for me. Well, maybe one day you will, you will write uh, an, like your version of Hamilton and then the vinyl diary will be like in the Heights. So it will be, as, you know, people will have a new fan. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, the, this is the first and only time that in the Heights will be compared to the <laughs> final diary in all of creation. God just checked a box somewhere that was like, okay, well that one time happened. There it is. Yeah, no, but I, I just, uh, I just think that there's so in my book, I have the line um, failure is such a terrible thing to waste. Uh, yeah. Suffering is suffer- such a terrible thing to waste. And, um, and I think that this whole podcast is kind of proving that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the book is staying awake, the gospel for change makers. And I told Tyler uh, before we started recording it, I'm, having our at urban village, we're launching a, a new site this fall and I'm having our launch team read it. Uh, and so for anybody in the church who, I think it's great just for personal uh, reading uh, and use in your own individual life certainly is great for churches too, especially for churches who are feeling like, where do we begin? How do we get back on track post COVID? And these, um, these practices are really great ways for people. It will look differently, of course, in everybody's different context, but um, they're really great, great places to start. So, um, Tyler, thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for sharing your time with me today. Oh, my gosh. So grateful for this space. And I do want to mention that um, on my website, tylersit.com, there's a free discussion guide for okay. the So if, if you do decide to um, use it in a church setting, for those of you who are listening, you're welcome to download download a discussion and action guide it's discussion but it's also like action steps to take towards um creating this anti-racist queer affirming church so thank you so much for holding the space thanks tyler and that's this week's episode thanks again to tyler for giving his time for this conversation you can learn more about tyler at his website tylersit.com and also on social media on instagram at tylersit that's t-y-l-e-r-s-i-t and facebook.com slash Tyler Sit. To learn more about my ministry and back episodes of this podcast, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening.